time to thrive. Welcome to the Thrivology Podcast with Dr. Lee Bauckham. Join us as we explore ways that you can thrive in your life, regardless of what life throws at you. It's your life. Time to live it. Where's your stuck space? I can tell you where mine is because I want to talk about the stuck cycle today. And I can tell you where my stuck cycle comes in because I was just playing it out earlier today. We were away for the weekend. And in fact, we got delayed by the weather. So we didn't get back to our home until a day later than we expected. So all day today, I've been kind of scrambling to get back to where I needed to be, to get the things done that needed to to begin the week. And what I found is I knew exactly what I needed to do. And one of those things was to sit down and compose this podcast to really get that podcast going because it's going to be time for another one and I need to get it off my plate for the week given the other projects that I have going on. So what do I do? I walk around the house doing everything but sitting down and pulling out the notebook and doing my job. Now, I happen to know that that's one of my really good coping strategies that does very little to help me. I've used it many times in my past, and unfortunately, all that technology does is give us so many extra ways of doing it. You know, instead of sitting down and actually composing a podcast, I can go through my email one more time knowing that one more message isn't going to make a difference in my life, or I can check out and make sure there's not something I need to respond to on Facebook, or I can go and check on the statistics on a website, and there's so many other things that call my name and they call me out of my seat. You probably have things that call your name and call you out of your seat. Those are coping strategies, coping behaviors. And now there's nothing wrong with those places in your life where you sometimes get a little overwhelmed and find some way of distracting yourself momentarily. But I want us just today to think about the places where that really does kind of keep us not just stuck, but in a spiral. I'm a big fan of the cycle, of looking at cycles, and and my guess is that part of my fanhood of that is because when I was in college, I had a professor who taught me a new way of thinking about families, and before that, I'd been exposed to individual psychology that kind of looks at what happened in your life that creates who you are now. But this professor looked at how the interactions, how the relationships in the family repeat themselves over generations and certainly within a generation over and over. We keep playing out the same cycles with people around us. And it gave me what's called a systems view of families. Now that systems view of families has been applied to, or systems view has been applied elsewhere. It's been applied to businesses. So we now look at how a system of the business operates as pieces all moving together. And as you look around, you'll notice that nature runs on that too. I'm staring out my window right now at a blanket of snow. And so we're in one of the less uh, favorite cycles of the year for me of winter. I get a little tired of the cold and the dreary. But I know that spring's right around the corner, and I know I'll get a taste of it in just a few days. And then in just a few weeks, it'll begin to be not just a taste, but more like the main course. And then we'll repeat that until we get back to this next year. Life runs on cycles. The cycle of a family as you grow up and have kids, and those kids grow up and have kids, and on and on the cycles go. So I really like looking at cycles. And for that, I want you to pull out a piece of paper and just jot down this stuck cycle and see if you can fill in the pieces for yourself. If you'll just draw a circle, kind of like a a clock face, a circle there, and at the very top, at the 12 o'clock position, just write down stress. 
stress is what tends to start this whole process. Now, we're in just a little bit going to talk about the reality of stress, but just for a minute, let's just assume that word stress. We hear it so many times. Something's going on and stress is building up. And as the stress builds up, what happens to you? Well, you become overloaded. So now what I want you to write at the three o'clock position is coping behavior, coping behavior. In the circle between stress and coping behavior, just write overload. Because what happens is as the stress just kind of builds up, we hit that place of overload and we all have some coping behavior. Now, some of those coping behaviors are minimal and others are destructive. For instance, people who go around breaking things when they get really upset, you know, they they can't find something and suddenly it becomes kind of a huge crisis and they start throwing things down and breaking things and slamming doors and being destructive. Well, that's a coping behavior that's not particularly helpful. A quick look at a Facebook or maybe a 20 minute nap, probably less damaging than doing some other things. And if we look at addictive behavior, that certainly falls in coping behavior. You'll notice that people who are uh, grabbing that drink after the long day at the office or after the long day with the kids or however it is, but after the long day of whatever, they have to have that drink, right? The stress is built up and they have to relieve it with an addictive substance, or maybe it's a drug, or, or maybe uh, it's looking at pornography, and or maybe it's even masturbating or meeting somebody for an affair. And so there can be lots of different ways we get into that very destructive behavior. And so the question for you to ask is, what is yours? A lot of times, if it's a substance, it's a substance that somehow alters the brain chemistry. Alcohol does that. Uh, Drugs do that. Sugar does that. Caffeine does that. There are lots of those substances that we put in our body. So we all have these coping behaviors. And right now, we can just kind of name that as coping behaviors. Now, at the six o'clock spot at the bottom, I want you to write feel better and then slash underneath that write feel worse. And between coping behavior and feel better slash feel worse, just write in numb because that's what the coping behavior is meant to do. It's to numb us out. If you're overwhelmed at work or you're angry with your boss at work or you're angry with your coworkers at work and so you go to Facebook just to kind of lose yourself in that, that's a numbing experience. If you have that drink of alcohol in the evening trying to knock down those feelings, that's a numbing experience. If you take a drug or do something else that distracts you, bedding, things like that, those are all ways we numb out that uh, that stress. We've used that coping behavior, and coping behavior is always about feeling more numb. So when we feel numb, at first we feel better about it, right? And so you feel better because there's some relief to it. But then at some point, usually depending on how destructive that behavior is, it begins to drift down to a feel worse place because what makes us feel better then can make us feel worse. So I remember in college and I even remember uh, after that, I had friends that after a hard week would go get ripped, right? They would go get drunk and that was their way of coping. They were numbing out, very literally numbing out until the next day when they woke up with a hangover, wondering what they had done that night before and looking at texts or whatever that was saying, wow, what a night, what happened with you, and then feeling worse. 
the same thing happens when people numb out by placing bets and realizing that suddenly the money's gone and they suddenly feel worse. The same thing happens when people are using anger as a way of getting that out. So they're slamming things down, breaking things, destroying things. And then, and they, so immediately they feel better, a little adrenaline relief there. And then they feel worse for the destruction. The same thing happens when people take that out on other people, right? You have arguments, yell at people, fuss at people. And then and initially you might feel better, and then you start feeling worse about that. And so the bottom, the opposite of that stress point is to feel better slash feel worse. So then what happens? Well, right down at the nine o'clock spot on the clock, so halfway back up to stress, right? The decision to perfection. Decision to perfection. And the decision to perfection looks kind of like this. I'm never going to do that again. Wow, I need to get my act together. I can't do that again. I can't get drunk again. I can't, I can't break those things again. I can't go betting again. I can't keep going back to Facebook again. I can't lose the day on the internet again. I can't fill in the blank. And so we have a decision to perfection because it's not just, wow, I've got to find some better ways of coping. It's I'm never going to do that bad thing again. So we make a decision to be perfect in our behavior. So in between the feel better slash feel worse is that depths of feeling worse and feeling regret. So in between decision to perfection, the feel worse and the decision to perfection, just write down feel regret. Well, what happens when we decide to uh, move to perfection? Well, a little pressure builds up. Because now our perfection is against our coping strategy. We've removed what we've used as a coping strategy. And for most of us, we use the same pocket full of coping strategies over and over. So if the cigarette break worked, we'll use that again and again. If, if the shot at night or the glass of wine or the endless glass of wine at night or the bets or the pornography or whatever it is, Facebook, name it. If that was what made you feel better at one point, we use it again. Here's the problem. Most people find that those coping strategies and behaviors have a diminishing return. And, and unfortunately, what we end up doing is chasing bigger and bigger pieces. And th- this is true whatever it is. Uh, w- over the weekend while we were with my daughter uh, at col- her college, we went and uh, we were getting a snack and she ordered some onion rings. And so I ate an onion ring. I said, wow, that's a really tasty onion ring. And I ate another, I went, well, that's a good onion ring. And I ate another, and I went, wow, you know what? That onion ring's not so good, but I kept eating them anyway. It's the same whenever we find one of those coping strategies. It's really good the first time. It really is helpful. And then we're chasing after that same feeling again and again. This is where addiction uh, theory fits in, because if one drink worked and then it stops working, two drinks might work, and then three drinks might work. And we build up a tolerance, both physically and emotionally, because we're trying to find that place where it feels like it did the first time. The coping strategy that worked the first time we think will keep working. The problem is, often it's a combination of diminishing returns because that experience was really never what we remember it to be, and uh, shame over it because now we're upping the ante. And so we find ourselves caught in a cycle. So as we make this decision to perfection, we feel the pressure because now we've decided to not use our coping strategies, but we don't have any other strategy to stop the cycle. So the stress builds up. And as the stress builds up, we feel overloaded. And as we feel overloaded, we seek some coping behavior, either the old one or we add a new one, or we add more of the old one. And as we do that, we first feel numb, 
which makes us feel better because the stress feels like it's at a distance. And then we feel worse and then we feel regret. And so we then we make a decision to perfect. And once we make that decision to perfection, we've given up that part of ourselves. We've cut it off and made ourselves feel bad about that, that action. And so then the pressure builds up. And when the pressure builds up, we feel the stress. And when we feel the stress, we feel overload, which causes us to have a coping behavior, which numbs us out for a little bit and makes us feel better. But then we feel worse and we feel regret. So we make a decision to perfection, which leads to pressure, which leads to stress, which leads to overload, which leads to coping behavior, which leads to being numb and feeling better than worse than feeling regret and a decision to perfection and around and around and around it goes. Do you find that place in your life? Can you, can you find a place where you do that cycle? You see, the problem is that our ego is what sets the idea of perfection. And that ego is basing it on an external reference that we've then internalized. We've imagined how this other person or other people are living in a different way than us, or living at a higher level than us, or living without stress. So many times I've had people talk about how they have, and they describe it as their uniquely stressful life, imagining that nobody else is going through the same things. And so they first rationalize their bad behavior, and then they try to imagine a better behavior that somebody else might do, and it's always an external reference. And they always feel bad about what they're doing, and then they step in and do it again because the ego doesn't have a whole lot of ability to to navigate that. It's about self-shaming. It's some ideal that is really kind of about the final product in the end. For instance, perhaps you forget about the process and are only focused on that final piece. You uh, decide that it's time to get that perfect body, right? And so many people have feel so many pressures from all around to look a certain way. So they have this ideal, this external ideal that they've internalized of what they should be like and what they could look like and how they ought to, which is, are all kind of those the shaming places, have that perfect body, which is different than trying to find a healthy lifestyle. The external idealization is that healthy, is that perfect body. The real need is for the healthy lifestyle, which leads to a level of self-hate which is rooted in not wanting to be who you are. Do you remember back to high school where we were all trying to pretend like we were all okay and that we were all like everybody else and that we were all feeling fine about ourselves and we did all of those crazy gyrations to try to prove it? Now, I I will admit that uh, I always knew that I was not the cool kid. That was one of my clear understandings that I didn't feel that cool kid model. I was the the one who was doing magic and doing magic shows and and working and, and liking to work and finding other places to be in my life rather than being the popular person. The popular person never worked for me, so I went with who I kind of love, followed my passions and, and went with those loves. But I always felt like I should be like somebody else. I always felt like I ought to be. I just knew I couldn't. And so I abandoned it for something else. There is a level, though, that is about that self-hate that we all carry through our lives if we're not careful where we believe that we should be like somebody else while we are rooted in who we truly are. The question is, how long does it take us to get to who we truly are? How long does it take us to give up that stuck cycle that keeps us going back to the coping mechanisms that never worked? So let me just give you the three rules I believe are there to break the cycle. Rule number one, self-acceptance. Self-acceptance is about saying, this is truly who I am. 
we have a fear of being nothing, right? Of, of having a no sense of who we are. And sometimes when I say to people, you know, this is all about self-acceptance, their fear is that means that they have to accept this lowly point rather than seeing the, themselves for the amazing people they are. Not necessarily of what we do, but who we are. There's a deeper level than just our behavior allows us to see. And so we have to be able to step back and say, do I always have to struggle against what is? And the what is is always lurking behind there. So there's a level of self-acceptance that is also an acceptance of where you are. And that's about uh, a realization of this. these are the circumstances around me. This is who I am. These are the gifts I have. These are the skills I have. These are the weaknesses I have. This is just where I am and who I am right now. And acceptance of where you are gives you the beginning point of where you might want to get to. What I do find is that people are constantly struggling against who they are and where they are. They believe that there is some other circumstance that should have happened to them along the way to lead them to a different point and that there's some other person that they need to be in order to be okay. But we are who we are. That's that's kind of the basic place of playing who we are, not who we think others want us to be or who, who we think we should be, but saying, I accept who I am. I accept my foibles. I accept my strengths. I accept who I am and I accept where I am right now. The only way we ever move forward is to say, this is where I am. Now let me move towards where I want to get to. The second rule is thought awareness. Thought awareness is the realization that at that very beginning point of the stress, a thought is just a thought. Those thoughts in your mind about the pressure that builds into stress, which leads to overload, is really just an attunement to your thoughts and a belief that those thoughts are real. Stress is an internal reaction to an external event. It's a thought process that leads you to feel that way. It's a thought process of believing that the thought in your head and the thoughts in my head are real. They're not just thoughts. They are real. The reality is that our mind only does one thing. It creates thoughts. Sometimes they're helpful, great thoughts, and sometimes they're not so helpful, great thoughts. Sometimes they are thoughts that move us forward, and sometimes they're thoughts that keep us stuck or even move us backward. And our task is to decide which is which, knowing that all along they're just thoughts. Now, when I say just thoughts, I'm not reducing them to worthless. I'm just saying that that's truly what they are. They are not reality. They are a thought. When I have a thought in my head, it is a thought. And when I recognize that it is a thought, then I can let it go. When we pretend that a thought is reality, then we begin to live into that thought. We begin to walk towards that thought. We begin to embody that thought rather than recognizing a thought is just a thought. So thought awareness leaves us a new place of freedom because we become aware that that thought in our mind is just a thought. The third rule is mindful engagement. For me, mindful engagement has really two pieces to it. One is to be non-numbed, fully aware, and fully present. Even if it's a painful event, to be fully aware and fully present to that painful event because pain is a part of life. And when we're numbing it, what we're trying to do is make it not so. Pretend like it doesn't have to happen or didn't happen rather than seeing that as part of that cycle of life. Pain is a part of life that's inescapable. If you're alive... It's going to be painful at certain points. 
And so part of the process is deciding to be non-numbed. Now, let me say very clearly that if you are in physical pain and your doctor says, hey, you know, here's some short-term medication to make you feel better. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about psychic numbing, where we're trying to knock down those thoughts and not notice what's going on around us. One of the biggest problems with our electronic technology age is that we don't have to be aware of what's going on around us then, and we can pretend that it's in that device in our hand. We lose all of that reality around us for that little screen in front of us as a way of numbing us away from our reality and only looking at the highlights of other people's lives. So non-numb, fully aware, and fully present to what's going on around us. Which means that what we do is do what we're doing. Let me give you an example. I've often watched people as they eat dessert. And it's a very interesting thing because very few people eat dessert non-shamefully. To say, wow, you know what? I love this and I am enjoying every second of it. What I hear from people is, you know, I shouldn't eat this. I really shouldn't have that last bite. I really shouldn't have this bite. I shouldn't have that. And so they keep telling themselves the same thing. Now, the interesting thing is it doesn't stop them from doing it. It only stops them from enjoying it. So a mindful way of eating a dessert is if you decide you're going to do that, to fully engage and fully enjoy it. If you choose to eat, truly eat it and notice it. Don't ruin it by the self-shame that we put into it. I notice the same thing, though, on a different frequency when people are eating. Many people eat food that is not particularly tasteful, not particularly tasty or good for them. And the way they manage it is by reading something or being distracted by something, TV or a ball game or something else, as a way of not noticing what they're putting into their body. So we end up with a very non-mindful way of consuming, but really because I think that we have some shame around that consumption. So part of what you want to do is when you consciously choose to do something, to say take responsibility for having chosen that, to fully engage in it and fully enjoy that process. If you're going to eat dessert, eat it with gusto and enjoy it. You don't have to have dessert every day, though. You can enjoy it when it's kind of a, a celebration, right? And then it becomes a big event. And so if you're going to do it, if it's going to happen anyway, enjoy what you're going to do. Fully engage in it and fully notice it. Also, notice the self-care as you choose those pieces. What I've noticed is that when people begin to be attuned, fully, mindfully aware of what they're doing to themselves, they stop doing them. When they notice the effects that it's having upon them, when they notice the effect it's having on them, their body, their relationships, they end up opting for better, healthier options. So notice the self-care of what you're choosing as you go through that. Many times we pretend like it's not our choice, but it's always our choice. So as you find yourself in this stuck cycle of moving from stress to coping behaviors to feeling better than worse, then deciding to be perfect and then moving back to stress. First, remember that stress is your internal reaction. It's a thought reaction to the process. Remember that it's all about self-acceptance, of realizing that who you are is great. You can always do better, but being better is not possible. Who you are is fine. Accept who you are and stop struggling against what is and don't live in the what-ifs. Decide that who you are is fine. Decide that where you are is where you are and it begins to be the beginning point.
Then move to an awareness of the thoughts that are going through your head. Notice those thoughts and notice that they are just that. They are just thoughts. Then decide to be mindfully engaged in the world. Non-numbed, fully aware, fully present. And do what you are doing fully engaged. Notice the self-care as you make those choices. As you do, you begin to destroy your stuck cycle. This is Lee Balkum wishing you the best for a thriving life. You've been listening to the Thrivology Podcast. Thank you for listening. If you want more information, visit us at Thrivology.com or at ThrivologyMagazine.com. Remember that Thrivology is spelled T-H-R-I-V-E-O-L-O-G-Y. It's your life. Time to live it.